This is Mark Gerson, and I'm the rabbi's husband. Hello, thank you for tuning in. I'm Mark Gerson, and I'm the rabbi's husband. And here, as ever, to unearth the inspiring, instructive, and highly practical wisdom of a Torah passage with a fellow seeker of biblical truth. And this afternoon, I'm delighted to have with me Scott Shea, who is the co-founder and chairman of Signature Bank, as well as the author of two important books on Jewish life in the United States. One, the first book was from 2006. It's called Getting Our Groove Back, How to Energize American Jewry. And the second, which came out two years ago, it's called In Good Faith, Questioning Religion and Atheism. And both are, of course, available on Amazon and elsewhere. So, Scott, I'm delighted that you're here with us today to discuss the snake in Genesis 3. Yes, it's a pleasure to be here. Thank you for having me. So tell us, what is who is the snake and what's his role in this very beginning and very foundational story of the Torah and of the Jewish faith? Mark, these are stories that are frequently, actually most frequently, misunderstood, misconstrued, and in some cases, mischaracterized. I mean, in my view, the first 11 chapters of the Bible are really about important lessons that God wanted to convey to the Jewish people and to the world, to humanity. Mm. And one of those stories is about this snake character. And again, you know, I don't, I don't think anybody really should be imagining that there was a tree and a snake and a person and a, and another person. I think that misses the point. I think that there's an important fundamental, I'm hesitant to sometimes use that word, but extremely fundamental lesson for us as human beings to understand what was the snake character up to. And sometimes people just either consider this story where the snake approaches the woman. At that point, the names had not been given to the human beings. Right. Actually, more accurately, the snake is really called female Mm -hmm. and is asked to eat of the tree of the garden. I mean, what would... What, what sense does that make? What is the snake up to? Why is the snake character doing it? And what does the snake character want to get out of it? Is this, per, is this character just looking to create some mischief? Great point. So before the snake enters the stage, God had commanded the man, Adam, of every tree in the garden you may freely eat, but not of the tree of knowledge of good and bad. So you can't eat from the tree of knowledge of good and bad, and later you can't eat from the tree of life. Those are the rules. So here's the rules. And this is where you really, and this is where as a close reader of the Bible, you'll, you and I hope many of your listeners will grasp this. The first chapter of the Bible is this effortless, awe-inspiring creation of the universe. The God keeps saying by Yomer, and he said, and things mm-hmm. just happen. And then You've got these these wonderful story that's been depicted in cinema so many times of the genesis of the universe. And then we get five verses about man, creating the Zachar and the Nekeva, the male and the female, the male and the female. And two of those verses are about what the human being can eat. 
which is really strange. I created this great, huge description of the universe, and now I'm going to explain to you your menu. And what is it? In verse 29 of chapter one, God says, see, I give you every seed plant. I give you basically all of the plants and all of the fruits. They shall be yours. But to the animals on the land and to the birds, I give them just the green plants, just the vegetables. So the menu is, we're now in the Garden of Eden. And people totally misconstrue the these first three chapters as being two different stories, which is, you can't actually understand the story of the snake unless you understand that the snake does have a problem. The snake character is resentful. What is the snake character resentful for? The people, the human beings, God's creatures can have the fruit. But what suddenly is the reason that, you know, the snake, I'm the, if I, the snake character says, you know, I'm pretty, the snake character is the cleverest. In Hebrew, it's the same word as indicating sort of the human being or is referred to in the human being, agum. And the snake is agum agum. So he is the wiliest, smartest animal. Why? I'm the snake. I should be able to eat the fruit. Why can't I eat the fruit? So he's resentful. He's jealous that man gets to have all of these goodies in the garden that are denied to him. And so what does he do? He is a wily character. So he doesn't go to the man because the man actually heard this directly. He goes to the weakest link in this case, which is the woman who didn't hear it. And what does he say? Did God really say you shall not eat of any tree of the garden? And the woman replies, well, we can eat of the other trees of the garden, but we can't eat this one, lest you touch it and lest we, you shall not eat of it or touch it lest you die. Well, actually, God didn't say that at all. Eve is sort of making this statement up, and, and or maybe that's how she heard it from the man, not Eve yet, again, but that's not actually what happened. When the serpent says you're not going to die. Now, here's why the serpent is so remarkably smart. Nothing the serpent said is actually a lie because God didn't really say any tree of the garden. The person who, I'm sorry, not the person, the character who can't eat of any tree in the garden is the snake and his compadres. Very interesting. And let's just say, if I could just add one more thing critical to understanding this point is what is going on here? They're in this garden. You've got these characters in a garden and there is no prey. In other words, no animal or human needs to worry about their life. Nobody's trying to eat them. The people can eat fruits and vegetables. The animals get to eat, get to eat the vegetables. And yet that's not good enough. This is truly the Garden of Eden. Nobody has to have fear. So why is it not good enough for the snake? The, this, there's two things about the snake. First of all, The snake isn't happy with God's commandment at the end of chapter one that he can't eat the fruit. The fruit looks good. You know, I like uh, lemon and lime added to my, you know, to my dishes too. I like to have those great looking oranges and apples. Although apples, there's nothing that says apples here. No, it's probably figs. Yes. So, but whatever, figs, whatever it is, I like those too. Right. And so I'm not so happy with this God who gave these rules, right? I mean, kind of God is this. I'm smart. I'm, you know, our room, our room. I should be able to eat whatever I want. But you know what? If you read chapter one, this is an effortless creation. There's no way 
anybody could resist, fight God, it's, it's impossible. So what do you do if you're the snake? You try to go after God's representatives on earth, which it says that humans were made in the image of God. So he goes after, again, the weakest links, the humans. And if he can get them to do what they're not supposed to do, well, maybe he can start having the, the fruit too. It's actually all about him. And it's about his resentment. And it's about his recognition that if he wants to fight God, he's got to do it in a smart kind of way, in a, in a clever kind of way. And that's what he does. So it's very interesting. So we know that it says the serpent was cunning beyond any beast. So we know he's smart, as you said. We know he's cunning. In his cunning, he knows he can't fight God directly. So he selects God's proxy, which is the being that was the only being that was created in God's image, which is man, human, humankind. He can't get Adam because Adam had the direct conversation. So he goes after Eve. Exactly. You got it. And that's that's this is the first resentment that we have seen in creation. There is no other resentment. And unfortunately, as my teacher, Rabbi Silber says, you know, at the end of this uh, story, it's um, snake one, God zero. How does the snake win over God here? Well, he wins. He, in a way, defeats God because he defeats the plan. The initial plan is that human beings are going to live in this incredible garden with no prey. I mean, it's as idyllic as you can be. No animal has to worry. No human has to worry. Everybody can, you know, truly the lion and the lamb can sit down together because no one's allowed to eat meat. And so the snake defeats God's plan. And, you know, there's a lot of theology on this, you know, in terms of the, and certainly Christian theology in terms of the, the fall of man here. There's some theologians, Christian theologians, that call this the fortunate fall, that really God wanted people to get out of the garden and to have a more interesting society. So you can, you can debate that, and we could spend a lot of time talking about that, but in the, in the nearest, closest reading, it's really God's plan, God's wonderful plan that's depicted in chapter two and is negated by, by evil by the snake, by the snake who is pretty clever. So why do you think that the character now called the woman soon will know her as Eve? Why does she reject what she knows, albeit derivatively from Adam, to be God's will to go along with the serpent? Ah, well, that's that's temptation. But the snake does a good job of this because the snake essentially gets the woman to say something that makes God's statement look silly. You shall not eat of it or touch it lest you die. And the that's not true. So he does and and you know and and frankly her eyes are opened after she has it. I mean again nothing the there's there's a famous statement by someone who I can't remember, but the best liars tell nothing but the truth. And the snake again nails that. Nothing the snake says here is ends up being wrong. Right. So he frames the statement in a way that makes God look ridiculous in the eyes of Eve, and she falls for it. She falls for it. And of course, the snake, it's a projection in that the snake is really looking to, is looking to God as being ridiculous. I mean, he thinks this idea of he can't get the fruit, he can't eat the fruit is totally ridiculous. So I'm going to make this, I'm going to make this God sound ridiculous. I'm going to defeat the 
the humans. And maybe then he thinks he's going to be the, you know, the, 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 the top dog. And also, I think it's interesting that the snake had this perception really at the moment that mankind was being created at how weak man could be, because it says in three, six, and the woman perceived the tree was good for eating and it was a delight to the eyes. These are all artifacts of the senses. It tasted good and it looked good and therefore she ate it. So her sin wasn't particularly sophisticated. It was pretty base. It was just the senses overwhelmed her rational and even theological sense and and won. The Yetzirah won battle, but the, probably the first battle, the Yetzirah wins, the evil inclination wins. The Yetzirah wins. There's no question about it here. And that's why people who read these stories, a lot of people say that, you know, there's two creation stories. And that's a very complicated topic and it's a long topic. But what's clear is that you can't understand this story, which is not a second story, without the so-called first creation story. Very interesting. Reading the end of chapter one. Because otherwise this story doesn't make so much sense. And we have fallen into this idea that, you know, the, the two separate creation narratives were stapled together. Well, in fact, they're integrated. They're not stapled together. So what do you make of the fact in terms of because I agree with you totally, by the way, with one of the first things you said, which is it doesn't matter whether there was a man, a woman and a snake in six days like the 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 Torah is not a history book. It's not a cookbook. It's a guidebook to help us live our lives more fully, more meaningfully and better every day. So what lessons can we take from the fact that resentment was almost baked into creation from what you're saying, that the snake was resentful just by the basis of what? God created for the snake and God created for man, no one saying or doing anything to anyone else. What can we learn from that and how can that help us navigate this complicated world? Well, I would say to you that resentment, an important emotion and feeling to resist. And it's a fundamental, fundamentally, it's the cause of a lot of bad stuff that's happened in the world. I mean, between nations, we Jews have unfortunately been the victims of folks resenting us, whether, you know, Jews have been rich or been poor. They've been resented, resented in some ways historically, theologically with, you know, with replacement theory on on Jews. So fundamentally, once resentment enters into a society, a lot of bad stuff can happen. And that's really the lesson here. I mean, you can actually forfeit the Garden of Eden because of resentment. I mean, well, the snake also didn't get such a great bargain here. I mean, the snake also never had to worry about any anyone trying to eat it, kill it. And yet that's not good enough. And how many times have we humans just not been happy with what we have? And so we want to take it out on somebody else. And how many times have people tried to be wily and figure out how to outsmart the other side? I mean, that's also the beginning of the of the Exodus story where Pharaoh says, come, mm-hmm. come, let us be cleverly figure out how to, how to enslave the Jews. It's, uh, it's, it's a constant motif that, you know, runs through our politics, even in the modern world, resentment. So if resentment is really the first bad quality that exists in the world. I mean, it exists really at the very foundation of the world. So in the way you're telling it, which is so interesting, it's really the first bad quality in the world then it be, then we should realize if it's in Adam and Eve's world, it's going to be in our world too. 
as ubiquitous, as prevalent, as pernicious. And it's something that we have to look for around us and in ourselves and constantly try to both identify and conquer. Yep. That's that's why I think this is such an important story. And and turning it into something about a tree and a and a and a and a piece of fruit and a, and 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 a conversation between a snake and a and a and a, and a, and a human being debases the story for what it really is supposed to be telling us. And then what happens next? By the way, the woman blames the snake. The man blames the woman. The snake. You know, I mean, it just goes in circles. It becomes a blame game, which is also not very useful. Right. It's it's almost like this, the quintessentially idyllic situation in the Garden of Eden, as soon as the snake voices his resentment, basically complete, complete catastrophe follows. Yes. Everyone blames everyone. The, the snake, as you pointed out, so it may have been one oh the snake God, but then immediately thereafter, the snake is declared man's enemy forever and will never walk again. That's what it's trying to say. This is a really bad trait, resentment. And we have to make sure that resentment also doesn't walk around in our society. If Very we do that, it will be in a lot will be in a lot better shape. And you know, frankly, if we do do that in our personal lives, we'll be a lot, you know, better shape. It is fundamentally what we need to resist. And that is why it is one of the stories in the first eleven chapters of the Bible. And and the way you're telling it, I think another lesson about resentment from this is it's not only that nobody wins, it's that everybody loses. I mean it's not even a zero sum gain where one person gains and another person loses and it's a net zero. Everybody loses once resentment is given the opportunity to do its thing. Absolutely. And and that's another lesson that we learn over and over again. You know, if there's really no limit to how far we can progress, if we're not looking to blame someone else, if we're not worried about who's getting the credit, I mean, that that's you know fundamentally an issue that has had widespread geopolitical implications and we keep missing it we keep missing it and and that's perhaps the saddest lesson that comes from comes from this story absolutely so scott thank you for such an interesting uh conversation about um such an important and foundational and fundamental biblical narrative. And I've never heard anything approaching this interpretation. It was fascinating. Well, I have to give credit to two teachers, to my, you know, two of my teachers, Nechama Leibowitz and uh, Rabbi David Silber. Oh, yeah. Both wonderful thinkers and teachers. When did you study with Nechama Leibowitz? When I was a, I did a junior year abroad at Hebrew University, and I had the great privilege. She was at the time teaching at Hebrew University, and I had the great privilege of learning from her. Was, was she as great as her legend? Was she as great in person as her legend is? Yes. It's just amazing. As powerful she was, a sh- she was extremely short and diminutive in stature. But what came out of, I mean, here you had a bunch of, you know, 20-year-olds and she had complete control. You could hear a pin drop. Wow. Because, and when she would ask you a question or challenge you, you know, boy, you felt like uh, you, you were really on the spot. Where did she teach? Was it uh, the five books of Moses? Yes. In English or Hebrew? So I was doing this. I actually did it when I was at the at the Hebrew uni, at the Hebrew University. I did it to took it to the Rothberg program. It ended up being a combination. In reality, it was sort of uh, Hebrewish, right? Because there were a lot of English, primarily English speakers, but the, textually we we worked in Hebrew. What a great experience! 
So let's just get to our, our final question, which is uh, derives from Andre uh, Maru's uh, 1968 book, Anti-Memoir. In the first page, first page, he tells the story of um, running into a man with whom he served in the war. And he said, this man saved a lot of Jews and then became a, a priest, a Catholic priest. So Maru said to him after running into him, he said, um, in all of your years of hearing confessions, what have you learned about mankind? And the priest said, I've learned two things. One, everyone is much less happy than they seem. And two, there is no such thing as a grown-up person. So Scott, in all your years as an entrepreneur, as an investor, as a businessman, as well as a Jewish public intellectual, what are two things that you've learned about mankind? Well, the first one is I can divide mankind into two groups, essentially. Those that believe in the golden world the way Hillel formulated it, don't do unto someone else, which what would be hateful if done unto you, which you would find if it was hateful if done unto you. The rest is commentary. Go learn it. And I don't care whether someone is, you know, quote unquote religious, quote unquote an atheist. If someone abides by the golden rule, I can generally get along with that person or those folks, and we can join together to do good. People who don't abide by the golden rule, people who think it's okay to do stuff to others that they wouldn't like done unto themselves, at some level, they're self-deifying. And lots of bad stuff can happen. And it's harder to make common cause. It's harder to be a partner with them in anything or a counterparty. And the second thing I've learned is essentially derivative of that, that I've learned in business, is that you can recover from a lot of things in business. Bad product, the launch, um, a whole bunch of things. You know, in business, there can be downturns. But one thing you can never recover from is a bad partner. Fascinating. If you've got a good partner, you're going to treat each other or however many you are as though that's how you would want to be treated. and, And if you don't, boy, it's also just very, very difficult to recover. It's very difficult to move forward. I guess it's the same thing in, for a marriage. For sure. That's the ultimate partnership. Now, you, you wrote your um, first book on the, really the state and the future of American Jewry 14 years ago. A lot's happened in the last decade and a half. If you were to, to do a new edition now, what would have changed and what would you say about your outlook for American Jewry from the vantage point of 2020 rather than 2006? Well, sadly, a lot of my demographic projections worked out to be... Which one specifically? Well, I, I tried to talk about the number of committed Jews. I wrote about intermarriage statistics um, on an autopilot basis. And those numbers in terms of committed, the, the core committed Jewish community have indeed shrunk to the same numbers that I projected. I also made some projections about the conservative movement, which sadly also have more or less been the more than the trend. I mean, it's more or less, uh, it was outlined in the chapter that I wrote in 2006 on the conservative movement. On the other hand, I think there's certainly been some some positives in, in, in American Jewry because those who are committed tend to be more committed. More than what? More than their parents? Or I'll give you an example. I mean, there are many examples of people who are studying Bible, and your podcast is a great way for people to do that, who are taking it more seriously than their parents ever did, who are sending their children to day school. So the committed core is, in, in certain ways, 
as committed or more committed. There's a vibrant center. The problem is for American Jewry is that once you got out, go outside of that center, the connections have frayed tremendously. How orthodox is that center? Well, the center is moving more and more orthodox. I mean, in I was chair of the New York Jewish, the last New York Jewish population study. And at the time, more than half of all children being born in New York were being born to orthodox families. What year was that? And that was 2011. I would say that today, that percentage is probably somewhere in the range of 70%. So it went up 20% in eight or nine years. Yeah, it is. Because in the, 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 some of the things that I wrote about, which is when Jewish women were getting married, men can put off marriage a little longer, and they do, for better, for, you know, I would say mostly for worse. And, uh, but women have been postponing marriage as well. Jewish women have been postponing marriage as well until at this point past 30. And so they're tending to have you know, fewer children outside of the Orthodox arena. And some women who would very much like to have children, you know, either can't have as many as they want or end up having certain, you know, some difficulties. So those were some trends that were emerging that I was talking about. The other trends that I talked about in terms of Hebrew school and day school and the importance of Israel trips, I think, and camping, I think have really become very much part of the Jewish communal agenda. And I know I've, the the book was at the time a bestseller in the Jewish community. It sold 17,000 copies. Wow. Which given that 99 and a half percent of the people who bought it were sort of in the Jewish communal world was, you know, pretty good. And it really did help set the agenda. So I'm really I'm really gratified that I wrote the book. I, I really, it was a, you know, a, a, an important life <laughs> achievement for me, but I'm also to some degree sad that its message wasn't taken even more seriously. Well, it was an important statement. And, um, and as is your more recent book now, are you working on another book now? I am, but I'm still, I'm still really focused on In Good Faith. And interestingly, I would say that book Question in good faith, questioning religion and atheism. I'd say eighty percent of the people who have bought it, and eighty percent of the, the 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 book talks that I've done have been outside of the Jewish community. Oh, interesting! It's really been a great experience for me, and I love talking to people about the Bible, and I love talking to atheists about the Bible because the one thing I've learned is the less people know about the Bible, the less they like it, and so introducing people to the Bible. And to the lessons of the Bible, I, I love it. I mean, I, my section two of the Bible, uh, of the book, not the Bible, section two of my book is all about the bad parts of the Bible that people, you know, have trouble with. Right. And it's been an eye-opener for folks when I when I give talks on that. And, and again, mostly not Jewish, mostly outside of the Jewish community. And, you know, because people tend to say in the Christian community, well, there's a lot of bad stuff in the Old Testament, but the New Testament fixes it all. And I say, wait, you don't have to do that. Let's just read these. Let's just read carefully. I'm not an apologist. Let's just read what the text is actually saying. And when you, when I've had the pleasure of doing that and see people's eyes open up, it's, it's like worth it. It's, it's all worth it. Beautiful. Well, Scott, thank you so much for such an enlightening and instructive conversation. Really appreciate it. And I look forward to getting together soon uh, when we can get together in person once again. I look forward to not being socially distanced, that's for sure. You are the God of the